Welcome back to the Friends with Opinions podcast, episode 9. I have my good friend Jadeep Kanungo here. We're going to catch up on things, things going on in the league and talk about the Habs and the Oilers and also visit on the rookie watch that's going on in the NHL. So starting off the podcast, we're going to talk about my Edmonton Oilers and the season that has been. It's been a bit of an up and down season. The first couple of games in Europe, very disappointing. Looked like a lot more of the same from last year, and we were just repeating everything. Um, and then they did go on quite a bit of a run, an eight, eight, two and one run that had some hope and optimism going. And then lost six out of seven, um, and then made the recent coaching change, won the last one. So. It's been a bit up and down, and uh, the jury's still out on the Oilers and whether um, a lot of people, I think, think that the 2016-17 season was a blip in the radar, and that was aberration, and this is the team that really is there. But, I mean, to me, it's just a treat to watch Connor McDavid every night, and I think he can carry us on most nights, but um, we need to get more depth going um, in the roster. Like, right now, the quote-unquote river pushers that we have are Connor McDavid, Leon Dreisaitl, and Ryan Nugent Hopkins. We don't have any sort of river pusher on the wings or the bottom pair lines or from the defense. Um, And so there's a lot of holes in this lineup still. And I think that, I think a big part of the season is going to be rested on the general manager, Peter Chiarelli, that he counted on a lot of young players to kind of take a step forward. And maybe there's a disconnect with the old coach, Todd McClellan, in terms of the usage of a Kyler Yamamoto or Yessi Puyarvi. But I think Chiarelli was counting on these guys to step up and fill big roles in the top six. And after a decent preseason, it looked positive. But um, it doesn't seem Todd McClellan was really buying into the game plan. They didn't seem to be on the same page. The pressure that has kind of bubbled after a season of losing last year has kind of left those two to be on different pages. And Todd McClellan kind of sending signals to Shirelli, sending messages by scratching Puglia Yarvi several games in a row. Um, so I think the coaching change, you know, was necessary. I personally, like, we all know the horrendous moves that Peter Shirelli has made. I am a little bit more positive in terms of the younger prospects that he's picked and the pipeline has some players as compared to the past where we had nothing. At least we have some guys like the Tyler Bensons and the Ryan McLeods and the Caleb Jones or the Ethan Bear and the Evan Bouchard and these guys that we can kind of stash and let them develop a bit and take that time that we weren't doing really in the past. So that's one aspect of Shirley I like. We all know the Hall trade and the the Barzell pick trade um, and, you know, People complain about the Everly trade as well, but I just feel like Everly's maybe not a winning player. So, yeah, there's a lot of mistakes there. But at the same time, I believe in some of the young players. And Todd McClellan, I just did not like his deployment. It's been like 12 years now from Eakins to Matt, like to Tom Rennie, to Tom Rennie, to Pat Quinn, to even Todd McClellan. The D zone coverage where you have like these massive gaps massive chances where people just lose their man like continues happening they're young players they've never really been taught defense or taken in that message so i'm hoping hitchcock's known for implementing a defensive structure 
So I think that's like a key thing that this team needs, even if he comes in temporarily and builds that structure finally so we can move forward with a team that can actually play defense in the National Hockey League, then I think there's some positive there. And with Tom McClellan, the thing that frustrates me the most is the dump and chase game. It's a puck possession error. And you have a guy like Ryan Nugent Hopkins have plenty of space to carry the puck into the zone, but his instinct, what his coach has told him that he's got to do, is dump it in and chase after it and throw his body around and try to win with board battles with his body when he's got slick hands he should be handling the puck. Even Connor McDavid's uh, chipping it in and chasing after it sometimes. This is outrageous dump and chase hockey. This is puck possession era. And then even like in the D zone, maybe they're not capable or the style that they're being taught isn't working, but they're not getting those easy outlet passes necessarily all the time. It's just dumping it out. Of course, if you're protecting the lead, there's a time and place for that. But the style of play has been really like leaving me wanting with Todd. And at the end of the day, like if he can't get anything more out of the players that he has, then what is he really doing? Like which player on the Oilers can you say right now, Todd McClellan made better? Like who's had like a career year or took a level higher? Lucic, and, and yeah, we can blame the players, absolutely. But at the end of the day, the coach's job is to get the best out of the players. Do we say Lucic is getting the best? Is, is Clefbaum getting the best? Is Larson are we seeing the best? Nurse? No, not necessarily. It's high right. Nugent Hopkins has improved a bit. Yeah, I guess yeah. Nugent Hopkins has kind of improved a bit under his watch and gained more confidence. Um, but, like, Connor is Connor. He's going to drive himself. And Drysaddle as well. And not managing the Drysaddle situation and um, kind of jumping around with his lines. He changes his lines, like, constantly, Tom McClellan. Like, how can you develop any chemistry? And he's notoriously known as somebody who's not communicating with young players. Um, we have a friend who actually lives in the building with uh, Yesse Pugliarvi, ran into him in the elevator and was asking him. And he's like, yeah, I don't think the coach likes me. So you have this 20-year-old fourth overall pick that the coach just doesn't, doesn't communicate with you Why you're sitting why you're scratched um, in this day and age with the, this generation of player, that's not going to work. And he's always scrowling, got a scrowl on his face. He's just very like think, angry uh, all the time. Like lighten up, bud. Do you think Ken Hitchcock is, uh, oh, God. do you think Ken Hitchcock though is a tonic that's going to turn things around? I mean, he, you know, he's notorious for being uh, hard on the players, makes players accountable, uh, is really focused in on defensive hockey uh limiting defensive mistakes but he is he's the oldest coach in the nhl right yeah i think and you know when was ken hitchcock last relevant i think his last few coaching jobs he's also had difficulties with young players Uh, i think vladimir tarasenko and st louis uh hitchcock had some difficulties there hitchcock was in dallas last year and it was a team that played slow and you know, if you remember that Dallas team where Ben was winning the scoring title and Sagan had just gotten there, they were really a high-scoring, up-tempo team. And Ken Hitchcock's really slowed that down. And yes, he may have tried to help limit defensive errors, but the style of play was sort of counter to what modern hockey has been over the last But you say Tarasenko, but Tarasenko the last couple of years, like since uh, Hitchcock has moved on, his game has gone down maybe somewhat. And maybe that's due to getting the contract, but... He was putting in 40 goals a year with Hitchcock. I think the thing with Hitchcock is like he rides his best players, so they do get a chance to produce. And yeah, Ben didn't win the Art Ross, but he didn't have like a terrible year by any any stretch. And Sagan talks openly how it helped his defensive game. And I think 
obviously the Oilers, when you look at the roster, you're like, hey, pass those top three forwards. What do we have as secondary scoring? But really, is our problem scoring? I don't think it is. I think it's the defensive side. When we have Cam Talbot letting in like four goals, four or more goals, multiple times over his last five starts, like you can't outscore that. Sure, when you have McDavid and Drysaddle, they're going to get you at least two goals in a game. If you can get one more goal from somewhere else, you got to try to win games 3-2 in this league, right? So um, I think the defensive side needs to get shored up and... Yeah, like, I don't know, uh, yeah, the offensive side, um, maybe the the pieces aren't there, and I'm not necessarily holding out hope that Hitchcock is going to, like, boost offensive scoring, but I have a soft spot for uh, Jesse Pugliarvi, so I am hoping that once he comes up, um, after hopefully a little, a little time of getting some confidence in the AHL, that he'll put him in a better position to succeed, and not necessarily because I think Hitchcock is going to gain favor for him. But I just know that Todd wasn't giving him a chance. So we were reaching yeah. a point where if Todd is the coach, he's not going to give him a chance ever. Then it's like, well, where are we going to, what are we going to do with this player then? Right. So at least like there offers a sliver of hope that he's going to help that way. And the thing with Hitchcock and again, the personnel isn't necessarily there, but he tends to have like a top pairing uh, defenseman that he can kind of utilize to an effective matter as a power play specialist. Um, so I think he ha- he he can kind of help that, like Petrangelo and Sh- Shattenkirk and and Pareko and stuff like that have done well under his watch, and Klingberg's done well under his watch. Do I don't think we those, have that. Yeah, yeah. they're not those type of horses. Yeah, I mean, Clefbaum maybe, but he's uh, I don't know. What do you think about Clefbaum? Is he a number one defenseman in the NHL? Um, I'd say he's like a two three in a yeah. ideal world. I think. And Andre Sakura is a big miss right now. Yeah, so that kind of comes back to what a lot of people in Edmonton and Oilers fans have been clamoring about. They see the head coaching change, and they, you know, it's a change. It's something that hopefully can salvage the season. But really, are we moving forward if we're not really addressing the real problem here? And Peter Shirelli is made made a lot of mistakes. He's considered to be a problem right now, and really, this is his last bullet to shoot. And if the Oilers don't make the playoffs then he's going to be out for sure. But at the same time, if they do make the playoffs, probably he's going to get leashed for another year. But given the types of moves he's been making, like maybe that's not such a good thing because <laughs> he might bleed some more of the future for some of the moves he's done. But in my opinion, it's bigger than that. I think the brain trust of you know Bob Nicholson and Wayne Gretzky and Kevin Lowe kind of advising Daryl Cates at the top, it's just... It's kind of bizarre that even like the coaches that come in, it's always somebody with some t- relationship through Hockey Canada. You know, Todd McClellan was like that, and they talked about that. So Tom it's Rennie, Pat Tom Quinn. Rennie, and Ken Hitchcock as yeah, well, right? Absolutely. So it's almost like they have to be friends with him in advance because they can't bring somebody else in you because, like, will Coach will will John Quinville come in and basically listen to like all these voices in the front office? he probably has a big voice of his own and he wants to have a big voice. So they kind of limit themselves in that way. And just as a sidebar, like anybody who worked with team Canada that wants to take credit for winning hockey games is out of their mind. Like anybody can win hockey games with the talent pool available. Yeah. In team Canada. Like it's outrageous. It's true. You can't be like, Oh, we won championship together. <laughs> like you overcame some kind of adversity or in something. In fact, that's like, probably one of the, that's probably one of the, uh, 
bad things about Hockey Canada. Sometimes they get too loyal and sometimes when they don't perform. I think the last time actually that they didn't perform was in the 2006 Olympics. Yeah. And that was when Wayne Gretzky was still the general manager and brought back the band of brothers that took them to gold medals in 2002 and 2004 at the World Cup as well. Uh, so they do get into that kind of trouble. I mean, I do agree. I think this is Chiarelli's last bullet. I think he knows he's dead man walking and he probably did see that, you know, Oilers are not that far out of the playoff spot right now. They're uh, the Pacific Division the Pacific is, is a weak is one so far. Bad. Nobody's running away with it. And uh, as of right now, they have uh, two games in hand on Anaheim. And actually, just Thursday, November twenty second. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I think Chiarelli sort of he's uh, a quarter of the season's gone. Sort of realizes that you know this is the opportunity to make make it to the playoffs otherwise you know who knows if he gets hired again as a general manager and i think it's evident from i think it's evident from the like the number of moves he's been making like it's early season not that many trades have happened but he's already like replaced the coach he made the deal just recently to trade strome for spooner um which you know i'm a little bit like Um, blah on that like strome i i think think his defensive game is like a third line center is pretty good he doesn't throw his body around so he's not punishing the, the opponent when he's out there. But his offensive numbers, like one goal, like all year, like he's just, he's a really perimeter player. And you know, junior players take like wide circle turns. He's like that, in my, like in my opinion. He doesn't, uh, he's not start and stop. He's not quick. But Spooner has also been struggling in New York. So it kind of sucks that like we go from a guy, Jordan Everly, who had like set over 75 points one year that, we have an asset that we let depreciate to a certain level and then sold him on the low for a Strom. And then we sell, sell, sell him on an even lower for another guy who's even lower on well, a Spooner. I, so, and Spooner yeah. has been able to pop some offense. So I think I'm hopeful that he has like at least a bit more, like he can get a point, you know, every few what, What's interesting to me is uh, in this new NHL. So these guys are sort of now in their mid twenties, uh, early to mid twenties. But I think what happens uh, is when they're young, they get that opportunity to play maybe on the scoring lines. Yeah. And then by the time they get to this age, it's sort of felt that, okay, maybe they're not as offensive as we had anticipated. Let's see if they can sort of fill in a third line type role. But, you know, I think teams now sort of see like, well, if he's not scoring and clearly can't defend, then, you know, we need to move these guys off and change scenery. And we saw that, we saw that other trade last week with, uh, Tanner Pearson yeah. going from LA to Carl Pittsburgh Hagelin. and Carl Hagelin going from Pittsburgh to LA. Uh, Hagelin's a bit, little bit older, but it's almost like these guys are, you know, they'll, they'll sort of chip in a little bit offensively, but because they can't uh, sort of play the defensive game, I think that's why they've sort of diminished in value now, sort of as mid 20 year olds. Right. Yeah. And so I almost think that Strohm for Spooner deal is, you know, it's, it's sort of just, change for the sake of making change yeah um and i think it's you know i don't i don't really know and charlie's really trying to make moves so they just it. traded for a sixth round pick in 2020 to ottawa they got chris weidman who had some good pretty good numbers in the ahl as an offensive right shot defenseman he was a 2015 ahl defenseman of the year um so you know yeah, they're the the people on twitter are, um you know the analytics heads think it is a positive move so hopefully um you know as a second pairing type power play role uh, i think he could be good in a bottom pairing uh, a five on five but it, it's evident that Torelli is obviously feeling the pressure that he makes them needs to make moves and basically find a formula that works to win games 
But the question is, like, why don't you do this in the offseason, man? Like, Sekiro went down, like, in training camp. He doesn't – once the – we all kind of thought, oh, once the salary cap space opens up, he's going to fill the need. But no such thing happened. And last year, same thing happened. Sekiro, we knew was going to be out at the beginning of the year. He doesn't find somebody to replace him. He's a, basically our third best defenseman. Like, yeah. take any league team in the league that their third best defenseman is goes down. And then your fourth best defenseman is Chris Russell. And you don't do something to address it. It's just, um, it's baffling the minds of many Oilers fans why we can very obviously understand that this is a huge hole on the on the roster. Why not address it up front, you know? And relying on young players year after year. And just like the whole handling of Jesse Pugliarvi, in my opinion, was off. Like, they should have put him in Finland for a year and then put him in the AHL for an entire year. And I liked what Detroit was talking about Philip Zadina that he needs to prove that he's a superstar in the AHL, then we'll call him up. Like, if you want this guy to be a superstar in the NHL, if he can't achieve the level of being a superstar in the AHL, then what hope do you have? Like, if it's, it's going to happen, then it'll happen first in yeah, the NHL. Yeah, so I, I find the conversation... They manage him all that well, and um, that maybe that disconnect, though, with Todd, and because it seems like Shirelli, every time they ask him, it really seems like Yamamoto and Pugliarvi, he kind of penciled in, in his mind, that they're going to contribute in a top six, top nine role. And that's where the secondary scoring, because you think like some of the some PTOs have worked out. Chieson has like eight, nine goals. Reader has ha- had some points. Um, but it's it, it, it's not something like that you can rely on, like that other teams are kind of finding. So, um, so yeah. And I guess another signing that Oilers fans have done a complete 180 on is the Miko Koskinen signing, because in the preseason – he just had so many holes when you, you know, he let in goals. He'd just be like, that was, he didn't try to stop it at all. But he's become a lot more, a lot more reliable, great positioning, great athleticism. He's made some like amazing saves. And with Cam Talbot continuing to flounder in his game, it just seems like he has an attitude, like he's made it already. Like he's an yeah, established starter. Tough. It's like, dude, you had one UFA season, here. man. Like he's a UFA. So, at least, like, the Koskinen has provided some stability so, in net. So what do you think has happened to Cam Talbot? And I, I think what's what's fascinating to me is that this team made, you know, got to within one game of the conference final yeah. uh, 18 months ago. And now they're sort of circling the drain as they've been over the last Well, some years. people would argue it's not the same team because we don't have Jordan Eberle anymore. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you guys... has been but, out But I heard, I heard... For a while, Jordan Everly was doing nothing. No, I agree. And yeah, I'm saying some hands Oilers, hands Oilers traded him. Yeah. And yeah, I guess Sekera has been injured since uh, since that time as well. Um, but yeah, you know, you would have expected some of your younger players to have filled in. And Cam Talbot, I think, has obviously been the uh, you know, it's not been able to recapture that form. So what do you think's happened to him? Like, why has he fallen off in terms? Well, of some uh, some Oilers fans like to postulate that. Uh, Having twins has put a toll on him, but I mean he's a professional here, you know. You gotta kind of manage it, but I guess when you have young kids, that can make an impact. Um, but yeah, I guess you could say that like the the team in front of him is leaking like better chances. Um, I think one thing that we have to start looking at now after this season, him not being able to bounce back, maybe that 2016-17 season was just a career year. He had everything going right for him. And then this is really the true player here, you know? Like, we, there's not really that much background that we can look back on and be like, oh, no, 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 he's going to bounce back. Like, if a Marc-Andre Fleury 
has a struggle to start the year, we'd be like, well, like, you know, we we know he's done it before. Talbot, I feel like he hasn't really proven himself unless you can be a yeah. starter for two, three years in a row. Like, you don't really gain that equity with well, the I fan base. So. It just sort of speaks to the volatility of the position. The uh, goaltender position, position, absolutely. And I think, you know, Jeff Merrick always makes a quote, like, show me a good goalie and I'll show you a good yeah. coach. Yeah. Um, and that's true. Todd McClellan was a genius two years ago. Yeah. Cam Talbot was firing on all cylinders. Same thing with Gerard Gallant last year, right? Yeah. But like, no matter who he put in net, they looked good. Marc-Andre Fleury ultimately ended up getting the credit. And everyone was sort of you know, uh, praising Gerard Gallant for how, what a great coach he was, right? Yeah. Um, so it it's just speaks to the volatility of the position and how the NHL is kind of a weird game where there's so much parity where, you know, the livelihood of a coach can be totally interrupted based on the psyche of his goaltender. And I think mm-hmm. that probably is one of the things that happened here. Yeah, so I think uh, that's a good review of the Oilers. Um, but that's actually a bit of a good segue It'd be good to catch up with you on the Habs. And of course, you've been watching more than me, so I'll probably be asking more of the questions. But that's a good segue because I think the there's a lot to talk about the Habs, a lot of fun stuff. It's I think it's been a better season than maybe could be expected. Um, but talking about goaltenders, Carey Price has been struggling. What are your thoughts on his game, the state of his game, and the state of his contract? <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, I think it's been a, it's been a tough one for Carey Price. I think, um, I think a lot of it has to come down to, uh, the defensive structure that the Canadians have. So Jeff Petrie has been their number one defenseman and he's been logging the other night against the Canucks. He logged, uh, Canucks, one of the games last week, he logged 33 minutes, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a career high. And I think their defensive post, uh, positioning has really, uh, you know, sort of fallen apart over the last few weeks. Um, I think. Early in the year, Carey Price actually struggled quite a bit. He had one really good game where against the Bruins on a Saturday night where he shut them out in Boston, and people felt because this is a game where Carey Price was going to turn it around. Mm. And then he sort of followed up with uh, a few games where he actually conceded um, you know, more than four goals, I think, on three or four uh, occasions. And they actually made him rest for a couple of days and had Antiniemi replace him. Uh, and then during the Western road trip that the Canadians had last week. He actually um, had a really good game in Vancouver, was named the first starter there. And since then, he's actually um, struggled a little bit. So the Canadians had a game on Monday night against the Caps. He conceded five goals there. And then last night against the New Jersey Devils, uh, last night being Wednesday, uh, he conceded another five goals in the first uh, two periods. Um, So I think when you watch Carey Price play um, before the the break that he had um, about 10 days ago it did seem a little bit off. Like his movements were not as crisp. Um, you know, he, he let in a few weak goals every night, um, you know, a lot of rebounds and it might just be a fact of, it might just result from the fact that his defense hasn't been as good supporting him. Uh, and then he had a little bit of a break and then came back during the Western trip and actually had a really good game. Uh, uh, the last two games, I guess, against uh against uh, Calgary and, and uh, Vancouver. He played actually really well, and he was very clean in his movements, uh, looked like the old Carey Price was back. And then even the two games this week, I felt like Carey Price was making gargantuan saves. He's, he, like on Wednesday night, or a Monday night when they played the Caps, I don't know if you watched any of that game, no. but uh, he absolutely made five or six sort of highlight reel saves. He had no business making. Um, uh, he 
you know, only goal, like he maybe only allowed one or two goals that really weren't his fault over the last two games. Um, so I, anyways, I'm saying a lot of things. Bottom line is right now his save percentage is only 895. Um, I think a lot of people just look at 3.17 goals against. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at that and say like, oh, he's struggling, he's not playing well. But I think over the last four games that he's played, He's actually played well, if that makes sense. Like when you watch him, technically he looks good. He looks like his, his calm demeanor is back. Looks like he's a little bit more uh, solid in his movements. But I think the defense has been completely shambolic over the last uh, two games at least. Um, and I think the defensive coverage has really fallen apart. I think they're really missing Shea Weber. Um, Shea Weber I saw he's back. due back on Tuesday. Yeah, so they're hoping so he can get back on Tuesday. Yeah, I think the Canadians' defense has really been stretched thin. Um, you know, they sort of over-exceeded expectations for the first six weeks of the season. But I think now, you know, the realities of how inexperienced and how uh, sort of shallow this defensive depth is, is, is sort of coming into play. I think the one guy that's really struggled this year has been Victor Mete. Mm-hmm. And when you sort of watch him play, uh, I mean, last year he was such a revelation in sort of how he skated, how he moved the puck. Didn't really put up much in the way of offensive numbers, but um, you know the fact that he could sort of hang at the NHL level at age 19 was a huge revelation. Uh, I think when you watch him this year, he's really uh, – I almost like feel like, you know, when you play hockey, sometimes if you're a smaller defenseman, you're having to sort of reach uh, into plays a little bit more, sort of lose your positioning, your proprioception uh, because of that, and you sort of get walked around a little bit. And I think Mete has been sort of walked around a little bit this year. Um, he's lost a lot of battles on the boards. Um, and I think he's sort of been um, one of the embodiments of how the Canadians' defense has sort of not kept up kept up over the last uh, couple of weeks. And I think that's really one of the main, major reasons why Carey Price, his numbers. Uh, so you think it's more on the defense, his struggles? Well, I shouldn't say entirely on that. I think it's a combination. I think when you look at his play earlier in the season, he was – you know, maybe a little bit behind. I remember there's one game against Ottawa where Mikhail Bodker was basically uh, on the goal line and just slid a puck. And it t- it was one of the worst goals I've seen Carey Price concede. Um, and that's very atypical of Carey Price. So I think part of it is positioning. Uh, Carey Price also had a daughter uh, two, three years ago. And, you know, you mentioned Cam Talbot, <laughs> his psyche. You sort of wonder whether that's when, you know, playing a role as well. And goalies are finicky people. Yeah, and I think it does, you know, I've sort of posed a question uh, to other Canadians fans, like, you know, suppose we did have another goaltender that, uh, you know, sort of didn't have that day-to-day pressure, um, whether you just go out on the market, get someone like a Michael Neuwirth or a Philip Grubauer, uh, or even, you know, a couple of years ago, like a Frederick Anderson, basically a number 1A or 1B guy, you know, give up a draft pick for him, sort of see how he will perform. Um, there's a chance that goaltender might perform better than Carey Price. Uh, but there's also a chance that that might completely, you know, uh, blow up in front of your face. And I think uh, that's sort of the fickle nature of net mining. I think you look at a lot of teams uh, in the NHL, they sort of make that gamble. You look at, um, you know, you look at Carolina, they've tried to make that gamble getting uh, Scott Darling and now Peter Mrazek. And has it worked out? There's some question marks about that. You look at a team like, um, you know, Colorado, I mean, they've got Varlamov, but guys behind Varlamov that they've tried to sort of bring in, you know, has that worked out? Um, the Leafs obviously gambled on Frederick Anderson and it worked out. Um, but it, I think it's one of the most fascinating things about hockey is that 
you know, goalies are so volatile and fickle, and you see the highest paid players, goalies in the game, they're, they're not able to give you that consistent Yeah, it's weird. Like when, like when we were growing up, like those, the best elite, elite goalies were year after year, Wah, Belfort, Hasek, you can count on them being those top echelon guys, but... I agree. Like this day and age, it seems like it fluctuates, but yeah. So I mean, there's guys for sure, but even like Flurry's um, definitely struggling, like compared to last year. Nine oh one save percentage. Holpe like lost the crease last year, and even like Phoenix Copley's been getting chances. Bobrovsky like was, you know, he's got a bit of a contract situation. He's been bouncing around, but Hellebuck is nine oh nine save percentage. Yeah, it's been that great either. And Rene is like amazing numbers all the time but then of course you look at the defense in front of him but in the playoffs he's volatile so yeah. like who which goalie these days like can you really count on I know, like and martin jones has been like horrendous even though he gets wins and that's the damning thing so we talked earlier show me a good goalie and i'll show you a good yeah. coach or vice versa and you know you can see coaches they the whatever uh, a lot, you know, if the coaches want to invest in, you know, uh, a house in a certain city, it really depends on what, how the goaltender is going to play. Yeah. Right. I mean, when a team struggles, it's often because the goaltender is leaking goals. If a team struggles, often the first man out is going to be the coach. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the one of the scary things for a lot of coaches and for a lot of teams. Right. So we've sort of seen how goalies nowadays are not going in the NHL draft, and so. Is this going to be sort of a, a further thing going forward? Or like teams are just not going to use draft picks to draft goalies. Mm. You know, there's a lot of NCAA goalies now that sort of get picked. Well, look at the Oilers. Uh, Cost me like 30. They just yeah. found him in the KHL. So, so Europe, NCAA, um, you know, minor minor pro, or is that sort of the new road, new uh, new way to scout? Yeah. So goalies? I do want to like talk more about the Habs. So even though the like the D struggles you talked about and. You know, Carey Price as well, um, not necessarily at that, like, heart trophy elite level that he once was. And that's kind of what you expect when you have a contract like that. So it's not that he's necessarily terrible, but, yeah, in this day and age, we're more knowledgeable of contracts. And well, the scary it's held thing over is, people's heads. Like, yeah, the scary thing you're is. You're held to that standard. You, sent, you're, you know, you signed a piece of paper, the team signed a piece of paper, that you're worth this. So when you don't bring that value, deliver that value, then the fans you know, start asking questions. But at the same time, you know, right now, um, you know, Thursday, November 22nd, Montreal's 11-7-4, and four, and they're in the final wildcard spot. They're 4-4-2 four, four, and two in the last 10. Interestingly, like, they have 72 goals scored, which is, like, one of the higher numbers in the league. So their offense is clicking, but then they've let in 75 goals as well. So that's the problem. Yeah. But I think, you know, I wanna don't want to boast too much because it's still early, but... My guy, Jonathan Drouin, has been producing. A big reason, of course, is Max Domi. I think Max been, Domi has been the big driver. So he's been the river pusher. Yeah. And then, but once they put Shaw on that line, like last like five to eight games or so, yeah. they're all like they're all on a point streak and ripping it up. Absolutely. I think Max Domi right now is on a 12-game uh, point streak. And I think when you watch Canadians play every night, he has been um, an absolute line driver. He's, um, you know, he's constant offensive threat. Yeah, he, it's interesting. Like, remember, we, I think the last episode we talked about how Max Domi actually was suspended and how 
the Canadians were really upset about that because that was his addition to play center. Yet it didn't seem like he's missed a beat. All that talk about Canadians not having a number one center has sort of evaporated uh, because Max Domi has really emerged. Um, so as would you say he is a number one center? <laughs> I mean, it's a he's it's playing only like games. it right now. Yeah, it's only twenty games. Right? I always think you can never get ahead of yourself and make uh, such bold declarative statements based on that just limited sample. And he has had ups and downs in his career already. Like his rookie year was eye popping. And then, you know, last couple years have been. Yeah. So, but I, but I have really enjoyed the Domi, Druan, uh, Chemistry. They Drew Wan had a nice goal on Kincaid yesterday. The <laughs> yeah. move daddy. I, Absolutely. And then Domi scored uh, in, the second, in the third period after yeah. uh, after it looked like the Canadians were done and dusted. Uh, he put a, he, he sort of it was able to salvage a little bit of pride for the Canadians and uh, otherwise blow out against the Devils. Um, but I think the way you watch Domi play, he's like, he's clearly a fan favorite. I, you know, I had a lot of reservations around the trade. I was Alex Galchenyuk fan. Um, I think a lot of Canadians fans felt the same way. Like, why are we getting Max Domi's son uh, or Ty Domi's son, Max? Um, but he's really a fan favorite type of player. He skates really well. Um, he's very exciting to watch. He's like a cannonball skating up and down the ice. And he's got an edge to him. And I think that's what, one of the uh, fascinating things to see is that he's not afraid to uh, chuck knuckles and, uh, you know, get under the skin of some of his opponents. And he's got offensive ability. And it, it's yeah. interesting how he's like one of those guys who, you know, I think like a Galchenyuk, he kind of cowered under the bright lights of Montreal, but it seems like Domi having grown up, you know, for a dad who played for the Leafs and the bright lights in Toronto, he, it seems like he's thriving under the Montreal spotlight that he's in now. Yeah, for sure. He seems to be a really outgoing guy. He seems to really like the attention. Um, I mean, we'll see. Uh, the Canadians, uh, as we know, whenever they play bad, uh, the off-ice rumors start. Uh, we often hear the French media uh, become very tabloidy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's sort of a honeymoon phase right now for Max Domi and the Canadians. And no doubt, I think, uh, certainly all the optimism from October, it seems to sort of be a little bit more tempered now. Um, Canadians are leading the league in, uh, five on five goals. The power play has actually been quite abysmal. So in spite of, so whoever could help with that. Yeah. So the hope is, so there's a lot of reasons for optimism for the Canadians. So one is that they've played this year without Shea Weber. Uh, so their number one defenseman is coming back next week. The counterpoint to that is Shea Weber is now 33 years old and hasn't played hockey in almost a calendar year. Mm-hmm. And to sort of come back after missing that much time. And be uh, the guy again. That's going to be tough, right? Especially yeah. when you sort of see the pace of the NHL has mm-hmm. gotten faster and he's coming off two separate uh, leg injuries. So the optimist would say, yeah, having Shea Weber back is going to bring uh, improve the power play. It's going to sort of steady the defense. But, you know, there's some reservations, I guess, given the fact that he hasn't played in a year. I think the other thing is the power play. So the power play is abysmal. It's uh, I don't have the number in front of me, but it's one of the worst power plays in the league. So, you know, if you're to sort of consider percentages, given the personnel, you don't think that's going to be as bad. So you would expect that their power play will get better. And even if they do drop off five on five, at least there'll still be some goals there. And then the other thing that might be reassuring is Canadians are in a playoff spot in spite of Carey Price being uh, very, like, you know, mediocre this year. Below average. Well, yeah, well below average. Although it's interesting, save percentages, I think in the, over the last five years, we used to say like 915, 916 was the NHL average save percentage. I think that's actually come down this year. Uh, it's like, Nine point. I wonder if the equipment changes. Uh, yeah, well, some goalies have been complaining about getting 
bruises on their body and, for sure um i don't know yeah like how valid those are so yeah equipment changes uh the fact you know what's happened historically in the nhl is when there's an expansion team uh that means there's 22 to 25 oh, new yeah. players in the yeah so so i think historically although you know it's not a big sample but in the years after an expansion team uh, because there's that many more players in the nhl mm. the uh, quality sort of falls off a little bit um and no doubt i think teams are playing a little bit more offensive and i think one of the things with the canadians is you know under claude julian under michel terrian they've sort of always had the the reputation of being a defensive team Claude julian in spite of always sort of leading the league in shots uh and Corsi, um he's actually always been a defensive coach or defensive-minded coach. And one of the interesting things up until recently has been the Canadians, uh, their whole system. They've been really sort of attacking. Uh, they're really aggressive for checking. They really don't give opposing defenders much time uh, on the puck. Uh, they break out. They used to break out uh, in the middle of the ice. And now they're sort of retreated back to breaking out uh, along the boards. Um yeah, so Claude Julien has actually changed the system a little bit, although, you know, over the last few weeks, he's actually complained that the Canadians have been a little bit more tired, sort of averaged a game every other night. They've been on the road a lot. Um, and so uh, those, you know, uh, fast four checking legs that they had in the first month of the season appeared to slow down a little bit. So that could be a little bit of a cautionary tale. So I want to circle back to a topic uh, that we discussed, like, in the preseason um, so there's a couple of them, but one of them is, I re- recall when we were discussing prize Habs rookie, yes, Barry Kotkaniemi, you were of the feeling that he should go back and you thought in the best interest of his long-term development, um, I don't know if it's an exact parallel, but you look at a guy like Victor Mete and maybe them keeping him up didn't do his development a good service and it would have been better for him to go back down. So the argument might be that, yeah, like Kotkaniemi the same, but it, I did talk to you a couple of weeks ago. So where are you at with that? Are you think he is best served? Not just talking about the Habs and, you know, what's best for the team in terms of winning games right now. I think we could both say, given the lack of center depth on the roster, it's more beneficial for the Habs to have him on the roster right now. But for Kakinami himself, do you think he's developing? Is he getting better as the season goes along? Um, is his confidence still sort of remaining high? to make those creative offensive plays? Yeah, I think he's he's sort of surpassed all uh, of my expectations, certainly, and I think of most Canadians fans as well. Um, I think one of the times that we talked on this podcast about Kakanyemi was right after the the rookie tournament uh, with the Canadians. And I, you know, I watched Kakanyemi on one of the games closely. I saw some of the highlights, and he looked really raw. And I think when you watch Kakanyemi now, he's – you know, he's still very raw, like he's a very sort of lanky uh, kid that doesn't have much muscle on him. Um, and when you do watch him, he does sort of seem a little bit raw the way he plays. But I think what's been remarkable is that he's actually been able to really hang at the NHL level. He's been able to be creative. Uh, he's been he's been a lot. He's been physical at times. Um, so he's actually surprised me quite a bit. And, you know, I would say. You know, I mean, it's, it's, the thing is, we've only played 22 games. And so there's often this concern that things are going to sort of fall off. Um, but I think Kakanami has actually done enough where I think he probably is served to be in the NHL. Um, he's shown uh, actually that he can compete against some of the top centers in the NHL um, and that physically he still has a lot of work to do. 
but um, he doesn't look out of place as of right now. So yeah, his numbers so far, he's fourth in a rookie scoring race, 12 points. So three goals, nine assists in 22 games um, in 13 minutes and 59 seconds of action. Um, he's got about 40 shots in, in 22 games. His face-off percentage, you know, to be expected, 44.3 yeah. for such a young guy. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting. It seems like he's in, in Montreal for good now. Yeah. Yeah. I just hope that his um, creativity and his ability to kind of elevate his offensive skills and numbers over time will continue to rise and not see him sort of plateau yeah, they've put him um, on the, by being in the NHL too early. They've put him in the power play um, a little bit. Um and yeah, I think when you watch him play, he's making uh, a lot of plays. Um, he's uh, he's very creative player. He's got good touch on the puck. I think they have fostered that. But you know, I, I think whenever I sort of hear, "Oh, this team has done a bad job in developing players," all of that discussion happens in hindsight, right? I think when you know you go to a Canadians game and you sort of see the fans like really get off off their feet whenever Kakanyemi has a puck. Um, it's, it's insane for anyone to say, oh, send him back down to, to Finland. I think he's doing a good job hanging here. Um, you know, the, well, three years from now, we'll sort of see if his offensive game hasn't developed. Uh, I, you know, there'll be people retrospectively saying like, oh, well, you know, they should have sent him back to Finland. What were they thinking? And I think that's the difficulty with development. Everyone develops a little, little bit differently. Um, I think when, uh, you know, with Puyarvi going back to him, Right, it's easy to say now that oh, they should have done things a little bit differently. But but would you have said that two years ago? Yes, I think I would have, especially if I was in their seat to know the kid, to realize that he was very young for so, his so, age. So what's he the was difference? young in his draft yeah, year. but what's the difference and between Kachinami and Puyarvi right now? Well, I'm not sure. I don't know the person, right? But from what I understand, for Puyarvi is that. He was like a young kid. He was very immature. So, and he doesn't understand any English. Yeah. So why not send him back to Finland for a year, put him in English class there. He's still comfortable. He can at least focus on the right things, which is improving his game and getting better and preparing for the NHL. So I think he, just given where he was at and he was young for his draft year, it would have served him well to go to Finland again, grow as a human being. Like when you're a kid and you don't have that maturity, Grow yeah. as a human being and then come put him in the HL from the beginning. Like no questions asked, like exactly what Detroit said, prove that you're a superstar in this league. And then this year would have been his first year. And so now you hear some people being like, now they got to trade pull your RV. And yeah. it's just like the guy's 20 years old, but yeah, this should have been his rookie year where we're first as North American hockey fans getting introduced to him in the NHL and seeing like what he can do. Of course. And then when you're surrounded with, you know, uh, Austin Matthews, Patrick Laine, Pierre-Luc Dubois, who are all putting up. Uh, yeah, fair enough. But when you draft on draft day, it's not necessarily how good are you going to be today. The job of the scout is to project out into the future yeah. how they're going to be good and the path that they take. Like you look at a guy like Aho, he got drafted in the second round. And what happened with him? He went back to Finland for a year, developed his game, and then he came and yeah, was ready. I think when you're. Why couldn't that have worked for Puliari? But I, when I you're drafted fourth, for sure. you get forced ahead right yeah i just think about so exactly what you said about puyarvi you could sort of apply to just very kakinyemi as well where kakinyemi he when he was actually drafted the day he was drafted he was 17 turned 18 uh, early in the summer so he actually is a young uh draftee and he's actually the youngest player in the nhl right now and i think you know that nine game trial we talked a little bit about it uh you know a couple 
couple months ago when we talked about this topic. Um, but it, yeah, I think the nine game trial, it sort of can give you a sense of like, how is this guy physically? How does he fit into the team structure? Uh, can he hang in the NHL level, like in terms of a sort of even skating or, uh, you know, being able to time, have good timing. If he can't pass any of those tests and yes, send them down. I don't think that's enough of a test. I think they have to show improvement. They don't have to just show that they can hang. To me, that's not enough. They need to show that they're continuing to get better. Because at this stage of their development, they're so young. That's the most important focus, Yeah, is them getting better. It's not a matter like, oh, they can hang. This guy's supposed to be a first-line center, like 80 points. You're not worried about if he's going to hang. You want to see him dominate. Cock and Yemi? Yeah. Yeah, I mean. I mean, and Pugliarby, anytime you're drafting top five, you want that kid to yeah, dominate the, at some point. For sure. But, you know, I, I, when watching Kakanyemi this year, he absolutely has improved his game from the first time I watched him in that rookie camp to now. Uh, he's not going to wow you with his offensive numbers this year. I don't think that's the expectation. But, no, I'm not saying that. So, I'm saying, like, will the trajectory down the line occur? Or is he going to, like, well, if no. he puts up 40 <laughs> points this year and then has a sophomore slump next year and gets 30 points, then is he going to go into the third season being like, oh, well, I'm – can, can I be a 60, 70, 80-point guy? Maybe he'll start settling into the role that he's kind of found himself. That's that's what I mean. Whereas, like, you look at what the Canucks did with Elias Pettersson, you send him back to Sweden, where obviously he was, like, too good for the league. They rips it up, rips the league to shreds. He's like, okay, I'm the best player yeah. in this league. But I, I think, know I'm the best player. But the he wasn't a top five there. pick as well, right? So... He was or wasn't? He wasn't, right? He was. I think up. he was just outside. But yeah. Like so six. I think I think if you're sort of outside, maybe just look it up. But if you're outside of the top five, um, you know, the pressure to be in the NHL at 18. But that's the problem. Is that pressure is not realistic? You have to look at each player by player, right? You can't just um, have a cookie cutter system. And the Oilers are notorious for just rushing them into the league. And it's nice to see that at least for like Kyler Yamamoto and Evan Bouchard and like some of these other other guys, Nurse. So yeah, Pedersen was f- number five. Oh, he's number five. On yeah. Team. So um. So yeah. Anywho, I think um, that's been a good kind of discussion about the Habs for this episode. I do want to talk a little bit. Um. So I guess the other Habs thing I wanted to just simply mention is congratulations on the Max Pacioretty trade because it's looking <laughs> wonderful for you, Thomas Tatar is like outscoring him by a large margin. Yeah, Never mind, I, it's Nick Suzuki's doing well. Man, I think Thomas Tatar has become uh, a little bit of a fan favorite in Montreal, for sure. There's that guy, Thomas Tatar! Oh, he became, really? a, <laughs> became a bit of a meme over the last uh, week or so. What was that again? Uh, Thomas Tatar! <laughs> you should see the clip. It's kind of funny. Okay. Uh, but I love the way Thomas Tatar plays. Like He's sort of everything that Max Pacioretty was in Pacioretty. Uh, I know a lot of Habs fans love Max Pacioretty. I was always on the fence on Max Pacioretty. He just sort of has this... Um, and Tatar seemed like he was like a throw-in almost. Like, yeah, he was. To make the salary Yeah, work. absolutely. And, you know, you see right now Nick Suzuki is absolutely tearing up the OHL. Yeah. Uh, you know, he is leading the league in scoring. He's going to play on the World Junior team. So to have sort of the best player in the OHL in the Canadian system who plays center, that's uh, that's a very appealing thing. But, yeah, uh, Suzuki's numbers right now is uh, at 35 points in 21 games after 164 last year. So he'll for sure be ready for yeah. pro hockey. So next uh, and one thing I love about Tatar is, uh, you know, this guy, he like has, I don't know what happened to him in Vegas, but he like works really hard. And I don't think he's like 
as much of a grinder as Alex Radulov. Remember Radulov, like, uh, became a, a fan a favorite. Dog on pucks. Yeah, he's a dog on pucks. Tatar isn't like that. He's a little bit more uh, sort of graceful. Uh, and, you know, I can sort of see Tatar maybe when he goes into a slump can be a bit of a frustrating player. But I do think he works, and he works really well with Brendan Gallagher. They both have a good nose for the net. Yeah, uh, Gallagher's been good as well. Yeah, Gallagher's been outstanding. He's got like 10 or 11 goals, and he's been the heartbeat of the Canadians, uh, as he was last year. And, you know, he is, you know, even though Shea Weber has been out, and Shea Weber is currently the captain of the Canadians, it's really been Brendan Gallagher that I think has been sort of he's been uh, the leader. setting the tone. Do you yeah. think the play with uh, Tatar is still to flip him at the deadline? Because that's what you said in the preseason. Yeah, I, but it it's, it's a like good question. He's, uh, like carved out a, a spot in the Habs' heart. It's. Uh, I think that's a really interesting question. I think um, you know he he does have a big contract. I think he makes five million a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tatar. Um, the thing is, right that's now, a normal contract. I guess if he produces yeah. sixty points. Yeah. Exactly. Um, will they flip? I mean, it'll obviously depend on where the Canadians are. I mean, no, what do you, do you want them to flip them? Because uh, you, 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 it seemed like that was the obvious play in your mind. You know what? My answer to that is what? His uh, winning changes everything. Wow. So, so, you know, Tatar over the last six, last six weeks has been absolute revelation. The way he skates, the way he works, uh, he's been You're a, allowed to change your mind. favorite. I, uh, you know what? Like I was thinking if I were to get a Canadian sweater right now, I'd put Thomas Tatar. Wow. I just love those guys that, that just work that sort of uh, are unheralded that sort of endear themselves to the fans through the way that they work and, you know, do all the right things. I think Thomas Tartar has done that right now. Thing is, he's probably going to go through a scoring slump. We're all going to be like, what is Thomas Tartar doing on this team at this kind of money? And by, by the time the trading deadline comes around on 25th of February, might be in a completely different place with Thomas Tatar. Could be in a completely different place with the Canadians as well. They could be pure sellers at that stage. And then if there is some market demand for Tatar, maybe you do move them off and get um, some more draft picks. The Canadians right now have three picks in the first 62 picks. Oh, so wow. They have, uh, I think they have one first rounder and uh, uh, two second rounders. So they got one from, uh, well, they got one from Vegas, right? For the Pacioretty deal. So, um, They've accumulated a lot of picks. They've had really good draft picks over the last uh, two drafts. And so if you can flip Tatar, get some picks, especially if the Canadians aren't going to contend this year, uh, from a long-term perspective, that is probably the prudent thing to do. But there's no doubt that Tatar has become a bit of a fan favorite, uh, almost like Radulov was a couple of years ago. So to wrap up the Habs, uh, I'd be remiss to... I didn't congratulate you and your favorite hockey player, Tom Ash Plakanics, yeah. on his 1,000th game as a, a player in the National Hockey League. Was it in the NHL or the Habs? Uh, he played 1,000 games with the uh, in the NHL. In he, the NHL. He missed out on 1,000 games with the Canadians. Oh, right. So and then, so he then subsequently games. recently retired. So, um, well, yeah, congratulations on yeah, that. Like he but retired. I guess he wasn't uh, pulling yeah. his weight anymore. Well, he played decent this year, but he hasn't been able to get into the lineup. And then he hurt his back. And uh, for him to get into the lineup, like he was sort of rehabbing uh, in the last week of his NHL career. Uh, But what's kind of sad is that the Canadians had a lot of players. uh, For example, uh, Nikita Sherbach. They couldn't send him to the AHL without putting him on waivers. And Sherbach, uh, they didn't want to lose. So they went up to Placanus and said, okay, like we we want to put you on waivers. That means another team might claim you. Uh, 
or you know, you go down to the AHL and we don't want to see you do that. So what do you want to do? So Placanis could have said, look, I'm paid, you know, one and a half, two million dollars. Just pay me and I'll go to whatever team, or I'll pay me and I'll go down to the AHL. But um, I think he's one of the things that I've always enjoyed about Thomas Pocanis is that he's really loyal type of guy. Um, and he sort of felt like, I don't want to play for any other team other than the Montreal Canadiens. He even talked about how last year being traded to Maple Leafs was a really weird situation for him. He never really fit in, um, even though he played well in the playoffs. Um, but yeah, I think it was hard for him to, to have to play for another team. So he, but cheers to a great career. Yeah, absolutely. He had, he had over 600 points in a thousand games. Uh, you know, I think if he played, um, on a more competitive team, he would have gotten some sulky trophy, uh, consideration. Oh, wow. Uh, I think so. He was, um, I, you know, I think one of the sad things is he's not going to be appreciated by the masses, partly because he isn't Canadian, partly because he's a quiet guy. He doesn't promote himself, but he played number one center for many years for the Canadians. He did everything uh, defensively, killed penalties. He played against every team's top lines. 2010 playoffs, he was playing against Crosby. He was playing against Ovechkin. And, you know, his career is over. People have moved on. And, you know, I will say uh, thank you, Thomas McKennett, for all your contributions. Uh, I certainly won't forget, and I hope uh, many Montreal Canadian fans don't forget what he contributed to the team because uh, I think a lot of people may forget everything that he did. Yeah. Okay. Sounds great. Uh, that was a great kind of touch base with you on the Oilers season and the half season. I'm sure uh, we'll be talking more about it. Uh, we're kind of at the quarter mark right now. And uh, yeah, it's been a great chat and thanks for listening. Okay. I wanted to ta- talk to you a little bit about the Toronto Maple Leafs. I know we're all a little bit oversaturated with the Maple Leafs. And actually that's where I wanted to start. I find this year, I don't know if you noticed as well, that the media, the sports media in Canada, has taken it to yet another level of Toronto Maple Leafs coverage. And it's getting to be a little bit too much. And I know that the media industry is struggling, so they need to like zone in on their core market and really placate to them. But I just find that uh, watching TSN, watching Sportsnet, and I understand the Leafs have a good team. And unfortunately, it looks like they're going to have a good team for a long time. And the more success they have, it seems like the coverage is going to get higher and higher. I'm a big uh, Hockey News subscriber, Hockey News fan. Shout out to them. But they just go out of their way to put Austin Matthews on the cover of of their magazines. And it's just really starting to get frustrating. And even on some, like, podcasts, like, I listen to – yeah, like the hockey analytics one. And even to Bob McKenzie's been joking a little bit more about how, like, oh, yeah, I know how they call us the Toronto Sports Network. But he still dives head in. And whenever he has like, – he kind of talks about them <laughs> off the hop. And the amount of discussion over the contracts for the young players for the Maple Leafs. And there's no discussion whatsoever about Patrick Liney or Miko Rantanen is yeah, number absolutely. one in the NHL right now in scoring. Miko Rantanen. And his contract status is the same. Nobody's bringing it up. But, oh, no, Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, this is the most important news in the entire league. It just would be really nice if it was a bit more balanced and we heard more about, like, other players. And there's that's the problem, I think, with NHLs. They, they don't sell their players. They don't do a good, job, a good enough job of selling their players. And when there's just so much energy and attention focusing on, like, these three guys on the Leafs or the Leafs in general – 
it gets to be a lot. Yeah. Have you noticed this year that it's gone to an even higher new yeah, level absolutely. of, of uh, placating I mean, to the Leafs? Right talk? before uh, Austin Matthews got hurt, uh, he was scoring incredible. He had like 10 goals in his first seven games. People were like, oh, it's, you know, there was um, a discussion. Uh-huh. I don't know who started the discussion, but is Austin Matthews better than Connor McDavid? Remember? That was an actual discussion. Oh, my goodness. And then, yes. then he sort of slowed down, and then he got hurt, and now he's been sort of off of the. He's had a lot of hard starts. His first <laughs> yeah. game in the NHL, he's four goals yeah he has hot starts what's what's interesting though is over the last uh couple weeks mitch marner is the one that's been playing up points yeah and the discussion is like oh is mitch marner like now as good is he has he cracked himself into the the conversation as one of the best players in the nhl is he up there with the overreactions Uh, to like (laughs) short periods of time yeah like in what world is austin matthews oh i even remember at the uh, top in one of the first episodes of 31 thoughts podcast jeff merrick's like you know some some pundits are saying that the maple leafs are the best power play since the 1976 1977 canadians <laughs> i was thinking like are you kidding me like if you look at the 1980 like the the oilers came after the 70s canadians the pittsburgh penguins came after the uh, the the canadians the uh, avalanche in the early part of this decade came after the canadians and you're telling me the toronto maple leafs had the best power play since that time it's absolutely preposterous and I think, yeah, it just speaks to a complete tone deafness from the uh, Toronto, Toronto media. They're supposed to be national media, but, uh, you know, there's no doubt that they play it to uh, an audience, which is mostly Toronto Maple Leaf fans. I mean, the fact is, a third of the country does live uh, in southern Ontario. And so whenever the Leafs are playing, their ratings are going to be quite high. Um, I mean, that's the bottom line. I think what is galling as well is that if you look at a national panel, there's disproportionately uh, num- uh, disproportionate number of those that actually were born in Toronto or Southern Ontario, went to school in Southern Ontario, and then ended up working for either TSN or Sportsnet, right? Can you can you think of any other analysts that have sort of grown up in uh, Western Canada and that covered uh, Western teams? I think Darren Drager is one that grew up in Saskatchewan. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the guys on the panel are sort of Toronto born, bred, and that's, you know, to them. And and I understand that that's the core of their market and that's what's, you know, breading their butt, the butter on their bread or whatever it is. <laughs> but, but let's talk about that. Austin Matthews ahead of Connor McDavid. Like, how is this even conversation? Connor McDavid has back to back over a hundred point seasons. Austin Matthews has not even cracked 70 points. Yeah. Like, I don't give a shit about your point per game average. Like, it doesn't matter if you can't stay healthy. His shoulder is clearly glass. He, <laughs> he has a health issue. He can't stay healthy. And just because his point per game and he wows you with his wrist shot, it doesn't mean he's the best player in the world. That's not even the conversation. He's not even number two. Like, there's yeah. so many guys. How do you put but Austin to, Matthews to be, ahead mean, of Sidney Crosby? Yeah, Sidney Crosby. To be fair. Alex Ovechkin. Let me list the names. Stop me when you hear a name that is, like, so outrageous that Austin Matthews is just so obviously better than. Okay? Gino Malkin. How can you tell? take him over? Patrick Kane. How many Stanley Cups? Well, Gino Malkin won? is not even the best player on his team. Okay, but Sidney Crosby. These guys of are course, better than Austin yeah, Matthews. absolutely. Nathan McKinnon. Like, Nathan McKinnon has put up a whole season. And, yeah, like, Miko Randon. Look at what he's doing. Taylor I mean, Hall. Taylor Hall is a little bit of a toss-up. Nikita Kucherov, the things that he's done. Even, like, I personally think if you look at the body of work of their career, of which player you can say is, okay, reliably an elite player, healthy all year, John Tavares, I think, is ahead of Austin Matthews. Yeah. So, like, it's just 
uh, baffling. And then not even looking at the defenseman. Like, I know he's not having a great year this year. But, like, Eric Carlson is a defenseman putting up 70, 80 points. Austin Matthews has never even put it up uh, 70 points. Honestly, even Phil Kessel. Phil Kessel is one of the more underrated players in the league. The numbers he put up last year. How can you put Austin? It's one thing if you say... In five years, Austin's yeah. going to be this. That's one thing. Well, look, man. But if you say the game media. today, yeah. like, was with any of those guys, even David Pasternak, in my Pasternak has done more. Brad Marchand has done more. If I had one game to win right now, I'm taking Patrice Bergeron yeah. over Austin Matthews all day. Blake Wheeler. Blake Wheeler has been around for a long time. He's done an awful lot. You know, Jack Eichel's a toss-up. Nick Backstrom, year after year, the guy's top 10 in scoring. You look up, oh, my God, he's top 10 in scoring. Because nets off, you have an argument on your hands with Austin Matthews. Shifley, you have an argument on yeah, your hands. Yeah, like, there are a lot of great players. He's not even I, close. I, I think, he might not even be top 20. To be he's fair, better than I think that, that debate about Connor McDavid versus Austin Matthews, it's, oh. it's a little bit manufactured. I don't even know who it's suggested so it. It's so manufactured. But, but, but even, to be fair, even Leaf fans think it's... I'm outraged. Fair. Yeah. No, I'm outraged as well. I think uh, <laughs> the complete... Uh, Utter nonsense. I, I think like the Morgan Riley, they're like, oh, is he the best defenseman since uh, Bobby Orr? Uh, oh, the way he's playing is reminiscent of Bobby Orr. Yeah, there's other defensemen actually that have been putting up points like that. Thomas Shabbat plays in the exact same yeah. province and is getting no press uh, compared to Morgan Riley. I mean, I get it. You know, the Leafs are actually a, a fantastic team this year. They're they're putting, you know, they're number one, I think. I mean, the, yeah, it's been impressive without Austin Matthews. Without William Nylander, they're still like a top team in the league. So I'm a little bit jealous of like the way that they're performing. A guy like Kasperi Kapanen, um, I've always been a believer in him. Finally, he's getting a shot. Um, but yeah, I think like the overrating of players is like really outrageous to me. Another thing that I feel like they overrate as well, and I don't know where this has come from, and maybe you can explain it to me, but why is Kyle Dubas given so much benefit of the doubt? Why is he so widely regarded as this great GM and people think, oh, no, he's not going to get taken advantage of in trade? Like, what has he done? The guy's been on the job. I'm not saying he's not. I'm not saying he's not good. I don't know. He's been on the job four or five months. He's put together, like, I think with the Marlies, he's basically run the Marlies over the last Yeah, and they won the Calder Cup. Yeah, and then I think the way they ran the Marlies – was actually quite good. And the so, Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, yeah. he had a good uh, but, track but, record but there. Yeah, and when you look at the Marlies, like they have actually put in a lot of players that are playing with the Leafs currently. Are they, um, though? Like, outside of Kapanen, who's in, like, a top prominent role? Well, I feel not like a top prominent role. Andreas Janssen uh, and, like, some of these, uh, the Travis Dermott. Like, there's a lot yeah. of top. I mean, top, Connor Brown but, was there. Was Zach Hyman there? Freddie Goche was they there They have, for sure. but like, are those guys uh, like eye popping? Like, no, stats right no, they're now not. Anything, but you need but... to have, uh, you need to have depth. And I guess in the AHL, like, you know, good teams in the AHL are not because they've got eye popping superstars. Because they've got good players that are good at the pro game that uh, are just good, good uh, henchmen. You know, it, I, I feel like people look at the, the state of the Leafs right now, and then somehow Kyle Dubas gets the credit for that. And I realized he was part of the management team. He had a part to play. But at the end of the day, like on the hierarchy, up until like four or five months ago, on the ladder, where was he? Was he like third, fourth, maybe? Like, yeah, unless like maybe he was behind. Chefs. So Lou was top. And yeah. then you'd say like him and Mark Hunter probably are, you know, balanced. And then you have like a Babcock in there yeah. too. And then Miller you have well, Shanahan. Shanahan. 
Yeah. Sorry, who else as well? Uh, Brandon Pridham. He was like the, he used to be the NHL salary cap official, and then the Leafs hired him to be their capologist. Oh, so, so there you so like so, so Dubis, like really how much of his role can we give him credit for for the current Leafs? I feel like we can't give him that much. So we have to judge him based on what he's done so far. And I feel like very much the jury's still out. It's early. I think what has he done? He's he's signed Tavares. Okay, that's, that's pretty impressive. That's impressive, but is it really Dubis though? We all know the whole the picture with John Tavares and his blanket growing up. He yeah. obviously had a childhood dream of playing for the Leafs, and a lot of the work, the groundwork, was laid in advance to basically show that okay, we have a good young team. And yeah, Dubis deserves some credit, but not all the credit for him to kind of come in and and and, and look good. So I think okay, Tavares he does deserve credit. He's still there. He had to make the pitch. And he got him to come. Sure. But I feel like this whole Nylander situation that's going on, I mean, we all know what's happening. He's still holding out as of November 22nd. Um, Sorry, he's not holding out. He doesn't have a contract signed. And if he doesn't sign by the end of the month, then he can't play for the rest of the year. And that asset's just sunk. And right now, he's not in a great position to make trades because people know that he's against the wall. And like, what other team in the NHL with a player of the caliber of Willie Nylander is still not signed under contract at this stage of the season. Yeah, it's a Would big... the media like not be throwing a conniption? Now, I think their record and how well they performed obviously has bought him a lot of leeway for sure. But like, can we say that he's handled the Willie Nylander situation well? I mean, it depends really what ends up no, happening. No, I don't think he's handled it well. He hasn't because, handled it well. You know, the expectation from a lot of Leaf fans was, oh, yeah. Like, as, as sort of the summer wore on, it's like, oh, yeah, it's going to get done before they come to camp. I was like, oh, yeah, it hasn't been done. Like, oh, yeah, it's going to get done before the first preseason game. It's going to be done before the start of the regular season. Oh, it's going to be done by the end of the month, right? And every, you know, uh, lamppost that's been passed – He's still unsigned. Excuses right? are made. And, and then the thing is with Dubis, uh, he had that interview with Bob McKenzie at the start of the year. And it's like, we will get all three signs. Yeah. And that right? was a mistake, uh, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think it's a really delicate situation because I think Austin Matthews, you know, I think when you look at Matthews, he does have a bit of an edge, right? He's not going to like toe the company line uh, necessarily. And there's been some rumors even that, that uh, with uh, Mitch Marner, like he's not going to like take a hometown discount. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think, the fact that Dubas was so uh, sort of uh, self-assured that he's going to get all three done, um, that might just be one That's of the motivations. Sort of naivety. Yeah. It might be a little bit of naivety. He sort of showed his cards a little bit there that yeah. he didn't have to show. Um, I think a couple of the other things that sort of stood out as well was Brendan Shanahan saying how, oh, when he was a player with the Detroit Red Wings, they all took a little bit less money. To, because they knew it was for the cause, right? They yeah. knew it was for the cause to win the Stanley Cup. But you can't compare that when there's no salary cap. The Detroit Red Wings are still like the number one spending team in those in that era by a big margin. You can't compare that to right now and trying to get everyone signed. You know, I, I really do hope this blows up in their face. And Me Lender does get traded. Uh, As a know, Leafs think, hater? Yeah, I think it'll sort of, uh, sort of, uh, it's one of those hubristic things that, that as a hockey fan uh, drives you up the wall about the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I think it would be um, incredible if he chooses not to go back or if they can't organize a deal for him. Um, But I think what's going to happen though, I think it probably will come down to the wire. And one of the, yeah, I mean, it's taking this long. Yeah. I think the leverage play has sort of 
shifted sort of every week, right? So I think the first week of the year, the Leafs sort of came out all guns a blazing. Austin Matthews was on fire. Everyone's like, oh, William Nylander now has no leverage. Leafs have no, like, Leafs have all the leverage now. Uh, They don't have to sign him. And then Austin Matthews gets hurt. And then people are like, well, now they have to get Nylander signed. So now Nylander has the leverage. Um, I think sort of as the first six weeks of the seasons have played out, uh, you know, Leafs have the leverage, I think, because they necessarily don't have to sign Nylander. They're cruising along. Yeah, yeah. It's just that, you know, you have that asset sort of in approaching the peak of his career. And now the peak of careers are sort of in the early 20s. Um, you've got a genuine chance to win a Stanley Cup and you're just going to... And with a fan base like that, they're not going to let you forget about, like, if they go to the third round and they can't make the Stanley Cup finals and they're going to always bring up the question, if we had Willie Nylander, would we have made the finals? Would we have won the Cup? So I think this has, like, a very real chance of blowing up in his face and I feel like if this was under on a different team, like, with a guy like who doesn't have any leash with the fans, like a Shirelli or a Bergevin, like the reaction from the media as well, because they play into all this, would have been so much more negative towards Dubis and his handling of the situation that it would have put more pressure on uh, Dubis to make a move as well. Yeah. But it seems like a lot of them are fanboys for the Leafs. Yeah, well, so they I don't want to hurt Dubis's position. Well, I think winning changes, you know, the whole adage, winning changes everything. And I think in this case, the Leafs are, you know, one of the top three teams in the league in terms of points accrued to this stage. Um, it's hard for anyone to criticize the Leafs when they're playing this well. I think they're going to set franchise records if they continue with this pace mm-hmm. for points in a season, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to be hard for the Leafs fans, to, or I'm sorry, the Leafs media to really call out uh, Kyle Dubas in this situation. True, but I, yeah, I just think that... Uh... Even just talking with some like Oilers friends of mine, they just give them the benefit of the doubt. And they're like, well, look at what the Leafs have going for them. Well, yeah, that's not Dubis. I, I think so. the thing with Kyle Dubis is uh, he's an impressive guy, right? So he was a general he, manager. He's intelligent. He's, he's intelligent. He's, and uh, I think most importantly, he's he's good with the media, right? Yeah. So he's sort of a telegenic <laughs> type of guy. Uh, you know, the cameras seem to love him. He seems to be hip with... Uh, kids he's hip with the kids and and with with, uh you know i think he's got credibility with uh old school hockey men as well because you know he he did come up by being manager at the lower levels of the game you know what else he does he reads books yeah exactly so he deserves all times of credit because (laughs) he he reads books yeah well i I mean he seems like a fairly forward-thinking guy um you know he's given opportunities to women uh, not just with Haley Wickenheiser, but with other people uh, in the scouting department. Uh, he's given opportunities to minorities uh, in his front depart- front office as well. And even though that stuff might be uh, sort of window dressing, it does buy you a little bit more equity with uh, the general public. Cultural equity, right? yeah. So I think, uh, I think that's why he gets the benefit of the doubt, is that he sort of seems to... And I think one of the other things that gives him the benefit of the doubt is he's not sort of like your middle-aged hockey man he's not like ken hitchcock coming in you know like oh we need a coach let's go get ken hitchcock right the yeah next jerry geriatric uh guy that's out of work right now let's get him in because he's won a stanley cup i guess kyle Duba sort of represents a new age of thinking um sort of a fresh face and you know it's hard to argue with what he's done granted he hasn't done all that much but for sure this is something that is going to sort of define him at least for the next uh, few years i'm sure but that's the thing you say yeah like that's my point is that it's way too early i'm not saying he's a bad gm i just think very much 
the jury is still out. He hasn't even had a whole season as being the GM. And I think it takes like many, like three, five years to really assess a GM and what they've done. Yeah, but Toronto media, as we know, is uh, loves to react to the last two week of results, you know? Sure, um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, it, it happened uh, earlier in the year where the Leafs were, were sort of going through a little bit of a slump. And, you know, the knives are out, right? So that goes to show that if uh, the Leafs fail in the first round again, there will be questions. Mike Babcock, Mike Babcock's going to be questioned. Cal Dubas is going to be under the gun a little bit. Like, what are you going to do with Babcock? He consistently loses in the first round. Now you got these two contracts, three contracts potentially, uh, to negotiate. Um, so, yeah, I think Dubas' uh, reckoning is going to come. Uh, it's just, you know. Like, I think so far the Shanahan deserves the credit for turning it around because yeah. really until he came along and became, you know, uh, president of Hockey Ops and started pulling the strings there, they were floundering. They didn't have a long-term vision. They didn't have a long-term plan. He brought all these guys in yeah. after some, taking some time to assess. So I, mean, I, I think, think Shanahan, even though he's not always been like in the actual driver's seat, I think he's built that atmosphere, that culture around the team and that overall vision. So I think he you know, deserves a lot of that credit. So um, yeah, we could use, it's not necessarily that we need less Leafs coverage. We just would like to see more of the other great stars in the Absolutely. NHL. And other great teams, um, you know, on our recordings. So thanks for listening to our talk on the a little rant on the Toronto Maple Leafs. And hopefully they do terribly this year. <laughs>